0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. My name's Mick Brown. I'm a feature writer for The Daily Telegraph. I was at Live Aid in July 1985. Bob Geldof put together this extraordinary event, Live Aid, which was held at Wembley in London. Uh, 72,000 people crammed into Wembley Stadium. And at the same time, there was a show going on in America. And at the same time, of course, uh, they were being broadcast all over the world. So the audience for these events ran into millions and millions and millions. It's being shown on 95% of the televisions on Earth. Everybody there come together unified in this in this sense of wanting to do good i think you know clearly people come to see queen and david bowie and elton john and all the other people that were on but the atmosphere was of beneficence the atmosphere was of this collective sort of humanity there's nothing of course more edifying to the human spirit than the sense that you're doing good i first heard about it i guess when most people did it's some background that we need to fill in here, which is that in um, December of 1984, Bob Geldof had organized this, this record, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas. Know uh, and put together this, this sort of impromptu group of musicians uh, and the record went out under the title of Band Aid. That was the biggest selling single at that time in UK history. And it was a really extraordinary accomplishment Geldof had seen Michael Burke reporting from Ethiopia at the height of the famine uh, at that time, and he'd been shocked, stunned and angered by that. The African famine is the worst catastrophe faced by mankind since the Second World War. In Sudan and Ethiopia alone, more than a million people have died since 1983. And, and felt that sense of impotence, which is very often the reaction that people have. Uh, confronted with those sort of images. Wild place, racked by war, scorched by drought, visited by famine. Being Bob Geldof, he decided that he wanted to do something about this. And so he'd set out to, to call up a lot of his uh, pop music mates and uh, put together this charity single. And being Geldof, he, he was a real force of nature, uh, still is a force of nature and he'd managed not only to to persuade all of the top acts of that time, he'd also persuaded the record company to to waive all profits, he'd organised the pressing of the vinyl. He'd got everybody on side with this project. To cope with the demand, the record is being pressed in every available plant in Britain and on the continent. Shops are selling out as fast as they're supplied. I, in fact, interviewed Geldof uh, in the week after that record was released, uh, and he talked about the struggles that he'd had to put this together, and he was obviously very exhausted and depleted by all of this. And he said at that point, he said, that, "That's it. I'm not going to get involved in any more. I've done done my bit." He then broke his own promise and put together this this extraordinary event, Live Aid. From my point of view, I think that this is quite obviously the most important pop event ever. I don't think it will ever happen again, that these bands get together on one stage. And they're doing it in the face of quite obviously the worst natural disaster in our history. So it is a magnificent gesture. I don't think that I can organize anything more after that because I'm involved in pop music and pop music has made its ultimate gesture. I was there as a journalist writing about the event. Um, I arrived early, just to try and soak up the atmosphere and to get a sense of this of this atmosphere building. It was quite difficult navigating your way through the crowd. It was a very densely packed crowd, and there, there was just this 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 tremendous sense of sort of excitement, and I, I, I remember trying to sort of walk around, navigate my way through the crowd and then realising that was futile and so I navigated my way around the margins of the crowd It was young, happy people with sort of feather haircuts you know, the, the, the sort of fashions of the day blues on jackets lots of pastel colours uh, lots of t-shirts, lots of flags I remember there were lots of people waving flags this sort of, this constant sort of you know, obviously the background from the music you know and then there was a limited access to the actual backstage area. Uh, and I didn't go there actually in the course of the concert, but I remember going there after the concert and being struck by this sort of detritus of sort of food and water bottles and <laughs> the sort of the usual sort of mess that, that would attend any, sort of, any, any kind of rock and roll event. And I may be wrong about this, but the first act, as far as I can remember, was status quo. Uh Uh And people were dancing and people were getting into the mood and getting into the spirit. And the the range of acts that was on for the time were, were quite extraordinary. I mean, it was it was basically every major pop music act. Uh, David Bowie uh, was was fantastic. Elton John was very very good. One one thing that does stay in my mind musically uh, were Queen. This was the highlight of Live Aid, this was the pinnacle of Queen. In a peculiar kind of way, it was almost as if the music was going, going, going past me, or over my head. I wasn't really concentrating on the music. After David Bowie's set, he said, we're going to take a pause now from the music and remind ourselves why we're here. And they put up a, vi- a video on the screen, shot in Ethiopia uh, from a uh, Canadian television report. And it was a, 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 a young girl, probably four or five, staggering, just staggering, absolutely emaciated, stick-thin, hardly a person. I mean, it, it, she seemed to be almost just a sort of a faintly beating pulse of life. And the music that they chosen to uh, accompany this to, a song called Drive by The Cars, Who's Gonna Take You Home Tonight? and the feeling in the in the stadium there was almost a sort of stunned silence and and you could see people were uh, t- tears coming into people's eyes I, I still can't listen to that song now without seeing that image very interestingly 22 23 years later however long it was there was another concert organized by Geldof called Live 8 and he brought that young girl onto the stage. She had 10 minutes to live 20 years ago. And because we did a concert last week, she did her agricultural exams in the school she goes to in the Northern Ethiopian Highlands. She's here tonight, this little girl. There she was, this 24 year old then. This is to show you these things work, you know? This, this woman has had a life. She's had an education. Never forget that these things work. Some years later, she was interviewed by a newspaper, and she said that Live Aid had ruined her life. She'd become known in Ethiopia as the girl who'd been on television, she'd been a center of attention, um, and she'd never been able to, uh, to, to find proper work. She now had children, she was in a state of despair. Um, I don't know what the moral is, <laughs> I don't know what the moral is to that, but that was that was her story. But I'm sure that the story, the greatest story of Live Aid is that thousands, tens of thousands of people were, were saved and that it was an extraordinary, unique, and, and amazingly positive thing that happened and, and in a way was humanity at its finest. In a world of circus, the most purposeless and the most unnecessary death of all is starvation. I, I, I don't know if I don't know if, if if I felt at the time that this would actually change the way that that music would be perceived, or, or or that it would change something in music, which 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 it clearly did, because Live Aid was the precursor then to set the template, I should say, you know, for for any number of, of, of charity concerts, and and suddenly suddenly pop music, rock music, was walking hand in hand with charity. So it did have a very very positive very beneficial effect in that respect. But there's one there's one thing actually that does does stay yeah that does that does stay in the mind. And that's watching the beach boys playing good vibrations on the screen from Philadelphia. It may have been before that song it was probably after that song but just whoever was the announcer saying, now you know, wave to London, wave to Philadelphia. And 72,000 people in the stadium waving to Philadelphia and 89,000 people in the stadium waving back. This is in a time, of course, before you could walk down the street talking to your grandmother or grandchild in Australia on a mobile telephone or, you know. So this sense of, this sense of the world being connected that struck me really really forcefully this sense of god how extraordinary is this this is we live in an age where i can wave at somebody in philadelphia and they're waving back to me that was something that really stayed with me it's very rare i think that perhaps one feels that you are at something which is genuinely historic but there was a sense there that this was genuinely historic <laughs> Pero. Pero. All right. Eyewitness History is a Telegraph original podcast. It was produced by Giles Gere, Louisa Wells and Theodora Leludis. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow in your favourite podcast app and leave a review to help others find the show. And if you're not already a Telegraph subscriber... Head to telegraph.co.uk slash audio for your first month free. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50